2: That's greenlight.com slash ACAST.
1: Yo, technology. What is it all about? We don't even realize what it would be like to live with perfect memory. And that's what we're trying to make real. You can't imagine it, you only have to feel it. And so that's what we're trying to do, is making making humans feel like they have perfect memory. And when you do that, I think people very quickly realize that how could I live my life without it? Just like you couldn't live a day without your glasses. We hope that you know people will feel the same. And we see that today, people say that every day.
0: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, well, I have a question. How would you feel about having a device, an app that saw everything that you saw on your screen, heard everything you said, read everything you read, recorded all of it, And then would mine that personal record of you and all of your idiosyncrasies and conversations, turns of phrase, your most important and personal relationships and all their complexities. And then use that corpus of data to start writing emails for you, managing your life, reminding you of birthdays, summarizing conversations, kind of becoming your digital butler, so to speak. Does that sound at all creepy to you? Does that sound like a Black Mirror episode? Spoiler alert, it is! But anyhow, that is what Dan Soroker has built, is building rather, at Rewind AI, a startup that has not only built an app that does all of the above, it is also building a wearable device. They call it the pendant, you wear it around your neck like a necklace. Uh, so that even when you're away from your screen, it can record your life and all its banality. You know, audio. This is just to suggest audio. But it can record your, your life and all the, the highs and lows, pain, joy, cringe, everything in between. And if you want to get an early glimpse of this future, you can put down a $59 down payment to secure your place in line for your very own pendant. This all, to me, seems, well, a bit crazy makes me a little uncomfortable or maybe a lot uncomfortable but this is where we are in 2023 so just this past week OpenAI had its first developer day where it launched the equivalent of the you know the apple's app store but for gpts the goal is that we're all going to use um have a whole army of ai agents that people are going to build on top of the gpt technology layer all these little smart machines that will take the drudgery out of modern life, all of our hands from booking flights, restaurants, paying bills, fighting for refunds, writing emails and the rest. Rewind, I would submit, is on the kind of the ragged edge of this new world that again, to me, looks like something that I'm skittish about embracing. If I want to misremember what I said in an argument with my wife or my best friend or anybody else, that's my right. It Rewind's world, uh, it won't be. Anyhow. Dan founded the company a few years ago, and he has a bunch of very interesting blue-chip investors. He's built and sold one startup before, so this is not his first rodeo, and I think it's really worth hearing his pitch, because if you're wondering all about all the wild directions AI might take us, this is but one if interesting example of many. Whether this will actually work, whether people will take to it the way that we have taken to other things that once seemed unthinkable, like staying on a stranger's couch, or staring a little black rectangle for eight hours a day. We shall see. But I think it's definitely worth a listen. I think you'll get a lot out of it, and it'll definitely make you think. So here he is, Dan Soroker of Rewind AI. Enjoy! I actually came across you guys some months ago. I think you were on... Jason calcanus's podcast and I had seen you guys before that. And then you came out with this pendant, which was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I'm glad we finally got to connect. But before we get into the kind of the hardware bit, can we just step back and give you the pitch of what it is you're trying to do and why?
1: Yeah. The why behind what we're doing started actually in my 20s when I started to go deaf. I tried a hearing aid and it was magical. To lose a sense and gain it back again felt like getting a superpower. So ever since that moment, I've been on a hunt for ways that technology can augment human capabilities and give us superpowers. And that's what led me to Rewind. Uh, Rewind is a personalized AI powered by everything you've seen, said, or heard. And how that works is we essentially capture your screen, uh, store it all locally, uh, make that searchable, and then you can ask any question using large language models. And that feels very much like a superpower. It takes things off your to-do list, Uh, It lets you turn your past into action, and um, it's been going really well. How long have you been going? Yeah, we started the company March 2020. Uh, We actually had another idea, and that was obviously long before ChatGPT. Our first idea was a meeting bot, a bot that joins Zoom meetings, records it, transcribes it, makes it searchable. And we learned from that, actually, that there's a much broader opportunity to go beyond just meetings. But to really capture all of your memories, one of the things people loved about our product was that it got all of their meetings, whichever tool it was. But they really had this sort of market pull for um, for anything they've seen, said, or heard. Combined with the emerging technology of Apple Silicon, M1 chip had just been announced, uh, made it possible for the first time ever to do what we were doing in the cloud, but all locally, mm-hmm. which then changes the privacy story. Now we're able to store the data, compress it and have it all stored locally. We don't have access to it as a company. And um, that's what made, uh, I think, the key enabling technology that, that enabled us to take off.
0: The M1 chip is a kind of unlock for you because it allows you, at least if you're using an Apple device, for all of that stuff you talked about, your screen, the audio, whatever, to be stored locally. That's right,
1: yeah. The M1 chip has an architecture called system on a chip. So all of the hard things that we do, instead of having it, happen in software and in, in on the CPU, we can essentially offload it to these purpose-designed components, things like compression, taking what's on your screen and compressing it about 3,000 times smaller. So you essentially can indefinitely record your screen, taking things like uh, what's on your screen and doing optical character recognition, taking your audio, both your microphone and system audio, and doing voice-to-text or, or you know automated speech recognition. Those all now can happen locally using this system on the chip architecture. It's only getting faster and faster. Every new chip that comes out, right. uh, the M3 looks even more amazing uh, than uh, the M2, which looked even incredible compared to the M1.
0: So that's really interesting, and I think I don't think a lot of people fully recognize what's happening there because, especially if you step back over the last you know decade plus, it was we're generating so much data. That we need to put it all out into the cloud where it's managed in somebody else's data center and it's just being sent back and forth all the time and we had another founder on a guy krishna who founded this company sema.ai who are doing kind of edge creating new chips for the embedded edge as they call it but this idea of we're getting to the point where you don't necessarily need the cloud for all of that capability because we've reached a point where we're kind of going back to the old school and keeping things local on machines is that fair?
1: That's right, yeah. And what's made that possible is obviously that the performance can be imperceptible. You know, we it was always possible to do before, but it would hog your battery, it would make your CPU fan uh, go crazy. Now that that's reached this level of imperceptibility, it's it unlocks all of these use cases that before uh, were prohibitive. So now you can just set it and forget it, run it in the background. And really what how this changes people's mindset instead of having to take notes, which requires you to have foresight. And if you think about it, note-taking is such an anachronistic concept. You take a tree, chop it down into a rectangle called paper. Uh, You take a stick with ink at the end of it, and you write things down. Like That's the best we've, as a society, come up with to remember. We sort of took that on its head and said, let's just passively capture everything so you don't need the foresight to try to anticipate what you might want later. I see. The other thing
0: that you said that piqued my interest was, you know, you started it three years ago now with this idea of a meeting bot. And it seems like there's a whole bunch of that happening now. And it makes me think of what, you know, this week we just had the OpenAI Dev Day. And everybody's like, oh, now that we have, they're launching this effectively an app store, a GPT store, so you can have all of these, you know, personalized GPTs that people are going to build, etc. That a bunch of startups have basically been negated. Because, you know, OpenAI is trying to own it all. Was that your experience with just, you know, you start with the idea of a meeting bot and then Google does it or Microsoft does it or Otter does it or Trent does, you know, there's any number of these companies that will now just for trivial amounts, record all your meetings, transcribe them and now even summarize them.
1: Yeah, that definitely was our experience. We had launched when it was novel and new. We felt really special, and then every week (laughs) a new startup, a new startup would pop up. Uh, So yeah, we did lack differentiation, and you know we had competitors back then who were still around, and you know I'm I'm sure they're still kind of scraping by. And it was actually going pretty well, but we had this even bigger, better idea that we wanted to pivot to, and that's why we chose Rewind is because we thought there's such a bigger problem and. And the benefit of, of our approach is that you know, open AI can't really compete with it because what we have is this amazing proprietary data set of everything you've seen, said, or heard. Without that, you know, no matter how good your AI model is, without that data, you can't answer the kinds of questions that we can. And, you know, we're lucky that we have, you know, many of the co-founders of OpenAI are investors in our company. And, you know, I've known Sam since uh, 2010. So um, that's helped as well as that we sort of figure out the right way to, to partner and work with them where they do what they're great at, build a great reasoning engine. We do what we're great at, capturing all of this data and then turning it into action. And together it makes this amazing product experience.
0: On that product experience, so anything you've seen, said or heard. So does that mean if I put Rewind on my computer... For example, or my phone, that it's listening all the time. In other words, is the mic always on? Is it? I'm always effectively on a a hot mic. Is that true? And how does that work? If so, from a privacy perspective.
1: Yeah. So the screen is always recorded. The microphone is selectively recorded, whether you're you want to record or not. Uh, we have some tools to make that really easy. So if you have a Zoom meeting that starts. We can prompt you at the beginning of the Zoom meeting, do you want to record this? That's when we remind people to ask for consent. Uh, we want to make that a key part of our product is we want to be privacy first when it comes to recording others. Uh, but to your point earlier, you know it's becoming more and more normal for these kind of Zoom meetings to be recorded anyway. To do it in yet another way with a client-side solution isn't actually uh, as, as nearly as much friction as it was you know, two years ago, three years ago when we first started approaching this. And ultimately, the data is all stored locally, so it's kind of up to you what you want to capture, what you don't. We give you full flexibility. If you want to exclude certain apps, you can do that. You can go and explicitly exclude. By default, we don't capture any private browsing, so we're really thoughtful around what we record and what we don't, but it's a tool for you to record what you choose to record and stores it all locally. And what is the limitation of that
0: local storage? Because it, m- it reminds me of like I don't know, like a you know a corner store or a liquor store who have you know their security cameras, and then every three days it just like wipes it all because you can only record so much. And what you're talking about, it sounds like a lot of data. So how does that work?
1: Yeah. So this was one of the key technological milestones we had to overcome, which was how do we compress the video essentially of what's on your screen so well that you can set it and forget it. So effectively we compress the data about 3000 times smaller. Uh, that's what we use a system on a chip architecture from Apple to do. You're essentially accumulating you know 16 gigabytes a month. And for most people that's roughly the rate at which they're consuming and taking photos and a bunch of other things as well. So in practice you can keep going until you upgrade to your next computer and get a bigger hard drive. You know, eventually we'll offer end-to-end encrypted cloud backups and that kind of thing. But um, most people find value in just the last few weeks or last few months of what they record. So it's been working pretty well. That as long as we compress it well enough, people tend not to worry about storage.
0: I see. So the pendant feels like a step beyond because that's you know it doesn't sound, look like it's quite shipping yet, but you have an image of it on your website and it's kind of like a little doesn't look like, like a bullet or like maybe like a, a miniature lipstick or something or a pendant, whatever, uh, you know, like a necklace. How does that work? How do you envision that working?
1: The pendant is a natural extension of what we're already doing on your Mac and on your iPhone and soon on Windows. So today, we have many of our experiences digitally. We interact with others through, like I said, Zoom. And obviously, you read a lot, you consume a lot. But there's so much of our life, so many of our experiences that are not on our devices. So the pendant is a complement to those solutions. Uh, it actually pairs with your phone. So it's it, you know, the supercomputer in your pocket that you already have is what we leverage. Uh, so the device itself is actually very simple. It is a privacy-first Bluetooth microphone that lets you capture the things around you. And there's several things that we focus on to make privacy a key part of what we offer. One is, you know, one idea that we really love is this idea of diarization, speaker diarization, meaning knowing who says what, and voiced fingerprinting. So for me as a user of the pendant, I can record myself. The software on my phone knows this is my voice, it's fingerprinted it, and it records it. And if I've opted in, then it gets stored. If you actually meet me and I don't get your consent, then by default, if you speak, it doesn't get stored at all. So it's as if the conversation was one-sided, I don't capture your side of the conversation. Those are the kinds of technologies that I think will really make these devices more normalized. Uh, And you can look back at like the history of technology. If you look back even at the early days of the telephone, one of the biggest complaints people had and criticisms of the telephone was privacy. and the yeah. reason why is because back then you had to go to the general store to do the you know to, you didn't have phones in your home so people were worried about who's going to eavesdrop even when it came to your phone to, to your home, you had eavesdropping switchboard operators. And so what we're trying to build is like the technology equivalent of bringing the phone to your home, eliminating the switchboard operator and building a solution that you don't have it's not a trade-off between privacy and convenience you get all of the benefits and privacy is baked in from the very beginning
0: so it records my voice but then can i say okay say i have one and say my wife and i have a very contentious relationship and we want like a third party to be like you didn't say that trust me you didn't say that and then i can hit record and that you hit rewind and then we can both listen to it. In other words, are you able to get some kind of an initial consent It fingerprints their voice and say that people you speak with most, it recognizes them and it records them as well?
1: Yeah. So, so the actual, the very first inkling uh, for this idea came to me about three years ago. And the first person I told about this idea was my wife. And I was terrified <laughs> because I thought she's going to be like, oh my gosh, Dan, you're going to finally win some arguments. And I was shocked at her reaction it was the exact opposite. She now felt like this would actually help our relationship and our communication because so much of arguing is around miscommunication, misremembering what was said. And so in that sort of changed my perspective as, wow, actually, this could help both of us if we both had a, you know, an uh, objective sense of what was said, what was committed to, it makes us more honest, it makes us more, uh, you know, higher integrity. And it's as if we're living our lives with perfect memory. And if you had perfect memory, you'd be a much better, I certainly would be a much better husband. That's kind of the seed that sort of sparked what we're doing today. To answer your question, yes. I mean, obviously, if your wife gives consent and says, sure, record it, you can do that indefinitely. You don't have to keep asking for consent. That's a setting you can have is just sort of this, yes, uh, go ahead and record me. Next time you hear me, you can keep going. So that reduces the friction. So most people only interact with the same set of people over and over again. So uh, we don't think it'll be very high friction to ask for consent. And when does the pendant make it out into the wild? It is still very early. So we don't have a date set. We are very active, exploring lots of exciting options. We have a huge waiting list now. I think it's well over 6,000 people uh, have pre-ordered it. So we we certainly see the market demand and uh, we will, we'll ship them in the order in which you pre-ordered. So if you want to get the pendant now, go to rewind.ai slash pendant, you can get on that list. But realistically, it's not going to be until next year. And, and de- since the list is so long, it may not be until near the end of next year if you're later on the list.
0: Is there no dystopic aspect of this where you're like, oh God, this sounds like Black Mirror? Because they're actually, as I'm sure you know, there is a Black Mirror episode that is very similar to exactly this whole idea. It's not hard to see how this can go in directions that aren't great, especially when talking about privacy, personal relationships, etc. Is that something you think about, thought about when you were developing this and how to mitigate it?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, something I've thought about from the very beginning. And it's it's pretty normal for any technology to get, uh, even technology that doesn't have these kinds of privacy questions. Most major changes are hard for people, you know, and even people who think of themselves as tech forward or innovators, or early adopters, any amount of change is hard. You can just look at, you know, all of the, his, the entire history of new technologies. Uh, you always have pessimists who doubt the value. They go through this, I've coined this acronym, it goes through SAFE. Four stages of progression from sort of initially being shocked at what's possible, then awe of, of about its being capable, fear, uh, you know, is this going to kill me? Am I going to you know, lose my job for something I say? And ultimately, acceptance uh, and, and sort of expected. Um, you can look at every piece of technology has gone through this evolution, every breakthrough technology, I should say. And so I'm not surprised, and certainly I knew from the very beginning people would view this as a potential, because um, certainly sci-fi has uh, shown technologies like this to be dystopian, but if you look even at that episode of Black Mirror, the episode's called The Entire History of You, yeah. you can watch it. And it actually does a great job of illustrating the benefits. And I think one of the mistakes that episode makes is it doesn't actually realistically project forward how society might change in a world where what you say is actually something everyone remembers. And that is a world in which I think we'll be more honest. I think the kinds of conversations that happen today, the you know quote, unquote, locker room talk will go far, far away. There are people today who live their lives, gaslighting each other, saying one thing to one person, saying something else to another. And I think the world would be better for less of that. You can look at these things any way you want and it's hard to predict the future. But in my opinion, relationships will be better. I certainly know my wife and I would have a better relationship if we had this tool. And at the end of the day, it's it's gonna be up to users to decide to adopt it. We hope the market adopts this because they see the benefit and utility and the privacy first approach. And so only time will tell if I'm proven right. But we're certainly not approaching this uh, with ignorance. We're approaching this with with optimism and, and confidence that if we get the privacy story right, this will be a net benefit for society.
0: What has been the response as well, if we step back and look at what's happening broadly with AI? I mean, like I said, we had the Open AI Day yesterday. There's this whole new wave of enthusiasm. Just last week, we had the AI Safety Summit in the UK, we had the Biden White House executive order trying to get out ahead of this and regulate some of the stuff, which, you know, seems like a pretty problematic document, but that's a story for another day. But just this idea of holding together these two things at once, which is, you know, there's a lot of optimism here. There's a lot of possibility, but there's also a lot of fear mongering and fear about how this stuff is going to develop. What has been a response to your company from people, from customers, especially in the swirl of all of that stuff around
1: AI? Yeah, the response has been very interesting. Many of our biggest fans and biggest critics will give us that we are the, if you're fearful of AGI, if you're fearful of Terminator 2 and dystopian, uh, the AI is going to you know kill its master or its creator, our technology and, and how we approach AI is the one thing you could think of as the light uh, against the dark, uh, the forces of the dark, because we are an enabling technology. We help you augment your existing limitations as a human being, and in some ways by giving you superpowers, a human paired with a personalized AI like Rewind is more formidable than any AGI certainly today, and as our technology adopts and uh, or advances, uh, we think is, is sort of the tool that will enable you. So the people who are scared of AI, this certainly the people who are scared of the doomers around the scenarios in which AI takes over, they view us uh, very positively as like, okay, well, if there's going to be AI, at least I want a human at the helm of it and AI augmenting that human, giving them leverage and making them more productive. And that's what our pro- product offers.
0: So, in that AI apocalypse scenario, and Terminator is about to kill me, if I call up Rewind and been like, hey, see, right here I said, don't kill me. And then it says, die or whatever. And I'm dead. In other words, what is the superpower? Because it feels like to me the most obvious use case, and I'm sure you will tell me different or there's a lot more that I'm not being imaginative about, is around dispute resolution, perhaps. In a business context, when you're talking about contracts, okay, this this is what was agreed here. Here is the record, et cetera, et cetera. That seems like the killer use case. Is that what it is? And if not, what? How else do you see this being used and really kind of gaining a foothold?
1: Yeah, so so I think it would help to share an analogy. So imagine the impact glasses have to you when you're short of vision or like for me, a hearing aid when you have hearing to live your life. You wouldn't go a day without glasses. If you could have perfect vision, you wouldn't go a day without perfect vision. You can go, you wouldn't go a day without perfect hearing. And what we offer is perfect memory paired with incredible reasoning. So if you imagine your life, if you could remember every single thing that you might need at a moment's notice, if you never have this feeling of racking your brain, and not only is it about recalling moments, but it's about connecting the dots. If you had the ability to synthesize every bit of information you hear from every single source and have perfect ability to do that, that makes you incredibly more productive, more present. Instead of having to take notes in a meeting, you actually listen. Instead of actually having to write every email to every of your colleagues, you can have an AI draft every email for you and you can just edit it and send it. And so if you think about what even work means today, the vast majority of what we spend our time on work, including me as a CEO of a company, can be done by AI. 80% of our jobs can be done by AI. And so that's the leverage I'm talking about. It's not about go back to a fact. The memory that we collect is just the basis for what we offer. And the real value comes from turning that past into action on your behalf. You know, if you had essentially an augmented brain that had perfect memory, that could go off and do tasks for you, be proactive, not just go back and look at moments in your past, that's the superpower. That's when you, it's not Terminator showing up and saying, oh, I told you not to hurt me. It's you thinking five steps ahead saying, oh, I see this uh, dystopian Terminator 2 scenario. I've connected the dots on the three things. I have perfect recollection of the executive order by Biden. I know the three things flawed with it. I know the th- two senators I know who I'm going to go interview and tell them. It's that ability of, of sort of having a superpower of the mind and able to reason with perfect memory. That's what the real opportunity is.
2: At greenlight.com slash ACAST.
0: It sounds like it's almost uh, kind of doing the um, cognitive housework for you. In other words, if Rewind is recording everything I say, see, do, it gets to know me pretty quickly what's important to me, what I should be doing, what I should not be doing, reminding me of stuff, all that kind of stuff. So, almost like my kind of cognitive butler, so to speak. Who's just there, kind of helped me out.
1: Yeah, I think that the naive approach or the naive impression of what our product is is it just collects data. But if you think about a pyramid of data as the foundation, you've got information, which is sort of some synthesis of the data, and then from that information, perhaps some knowledge, and ultimately at the top of this pyramid, you have wisdom. That's what we're offering. Is, is we're you know as obviously we've got a lot to build to get there, but it's it's this perfect. AI double uh, that's really an augmentation or extension of you that can do the things that you would do if you had infinite time. That's another way to think about it. Like If you did have twice the number of hours in a day or three times the number of hours a day, how much better could you be and how much more fulfilled could you be? And if AI can take that away, take the things that are the drudgery, the the, the parts of your day that are menial and you, you think are maybe your job, and just make that automated and have it serve it up for you to take action on. That's, I think, the true promise of personalized AI.
0: How are people using it now, You know, the software product that you have at the moment?
1: The most common use case people love is ironically enough, recording meetings. <laughs> you yeah. know that is the thing we started with. One of the things we do that removes all of the effort is we automatically integrate with your calendar. So if you have a meeting starting, we'll prompt you, hey, start recording. After the meeting, we give you one button to summarize the meeting and send a draft of that summary to all the attendees, uh, which is super low friction. That class of problem, so I, I give the example of drafting an email, those are also really valuable. So we can ask, we have a you know, integration with GPT-4 where you can ask, rewind, write me an email to Sam Altman asking to catch up. It will take our context of our past. The, the fact that he was an investor in my last company and then we vest- in the, were introduced by Paul Graham. All of those tidbits of data around our relationship now are the context that GPT-4 can use to generate that draft. So those are the kinds of use cases that you can imagine. Any kind of knowledge worker task, our product can help you with.
0: Just in that one example, just to play out that string, how would it know that, he invested in your last company and that you got introduced by Paul Graham, would it be mining all of your emails, your entire inbox? Like how does it get that level of information?
1: So today it captures everything you see. So anytime you see an email, it knows just by the virtue that it's on your screen uh, that that is an email that exists and everything you hear and everything you say. So often I'll introduce our company, I'll tell, hey, this is Rewind, we're invested in Sam Altman, letter first round. So all of that context is there. And the way you can think about it very simply is when I ask Rewind, write me an email to Sam Altman asking to catch up. What Rewind does is it figures out, okay, what are good keywords to search your past? Okay, Sam Altman, that's a good one. Then it goes back to everything I've seen, said, or heard where the word Sam Altman or the phrase Sam Altman appears and it picks, it prioritizes what are those moments that in my past that are good context to offer GPT-4 to generate a response. So that's how it works. And it, you know obviously we haven't integrated with email we tend to realize it actually works really well just by emails you've seen, because there's a certain lens of your, your memories yeah. that are actually the things you're looking for, not just every email, spam email you never read, but it's the things you've actually seen that are actually the most relevant. Similarly with Twitter, you know, if I I bet you have Twitter today decided that the core approach to Twitter search was just, I should say, X search, I guess, but Twitter search is. Looking, just searching things you've seen, which it knows, that would be so much better than today, or today just searches over the whole corpus of all tweets ever, which is kind of meaningless. Uh, so that's the lens that makes our product so much more effective. It's, it's it's your experience, the things you've seen, said or heard, not just a big database that you're trying to comb through.
0: And that intelligence layer, that is using GPT-4 or OpenAI.
1: Well, the intelligence layer to take the context that we generate and the question you have and combine it into a response We have two options on on Mac right now. That's GPT-4. On our Windows, we actually just uh, were on stage with the CEO of Intel and demoed running that last step all locally on a new Windows machine on the Intel Core Ultra using Llama 2, which is really exciting. So eventually, that's where it's all going. It's all going to be local. It doesn't go to the cloud at all. I see. Uh, But right now, GPT-4 is so much better than Llama 2 and faster that we have that as kind of a stopgap.
0: Can we go back? So you mentioned you've known Sam since 2010. Let's go back further. How did you end up doing all this? Like, where are
1: you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I, I'm from Palo Alto. So I grew up in the oh, Bay okay. Area I'm surrounded by tech. My mom uh, was a secretary of the computer science department. Where? At Stanford and, oh, okay. uh, in the info lab.
0: Yeah. How old are you, can I ask? Uh, 40. Okay. So I'm 46, and I grew up in San Jose. So we weren't exa- exactly contemporaries, but pretty close.
1: Yeah. And it was amazing to grow up in that time and place. You know, I got to see Larry and Sergey as PhD <laughs> students. So I was always surrounded by tech and entrepreneurialism, and that's kind of what I've always wanted to do, because I thought that would maximize my impact. Uh, Went to Stanford, studied computer science there, actually studied natural language processing before Ah, it was cool. Before Uh, it was cool, yes. Then went to Google for two years as an associate product manager, left to go to the Obama campaign in 2008. In fact, 15 years ago, in a few days, uh, was uh, the election that uh, elected a president, which I'm uh, really proud to have played a small part. What
0: were you doing for the Obama campaign?
1: I was the director of analytics. Uh, okay. So my job was to figure out how to use data at the campaign to help make better decisions.
0: What were you doing or seeing there that helped reach the promised land, so to speak? 2008 is like a billion years ago in, in tech terms. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious what, if you remember anything from that.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I remember incredibly fondly. So, so I'd learnt, I worked at Google. So that was my entire formative experience is how an organization run, should run. And at Google at that time, it was actually quite meritocratic. It was very data-driven. No matter who you were in the organization, if you had data to back up an idea, it would get done and so i brought that mentality to the campaign and the campaign was particularly receptive to it because when i joined we were third in the polls behind hillary clinton and john edwards for the democratic nomination john david edwards
0: Pluff, oh my gosh yeah. i haven't heard that name in david, a while wow
1: david Plough, our campaign manager had what he described uh, later in his book this risk reward mentality. So he knew that if we just did everything like every other campaign, we would end up however unexpected, expected third in the polls. So interestingly enough, that mentality is what enabled them to say, hey, maybe we should use data to make decisions, which is like in tech world so obvious, but in politics and in campaigns, like, is, it's the opposite, you know, yeah. the way campaigns before Obama, oh, wait, the way campaigns would make decisions would be, you know, the grizzled uh, veteran with a white hair in the corner smoking a cigar, but not ah, make the website say that, you know. But what we used was A-B testing and experimentation to actually measure the impact of what we were doing, which had a huge, uh, and, and try different variations. A uh, great example is when you went to Barack Obama.com back in December of 2007, right before the Iowa caucuses, right before he won the first big yeah. uh, contest, we ran this test, comparing what we thought was a brilliant idea, this beautiful emotional video of his speech in 2004 and him walking out in a crowd looking super presidential. We tested that video, which we loved, versus a couple pictures, one very presidential looking one where he's like, you know, again, looking very uh, uh, smart. Uh, And then we thought just for fun, let's just throw in a kind of informal photo, a black and white photo with him, Michelle, Sasha, and Malia, all just, you know, being very casual. And that last photo did so much better than the rest. We went back and looked. It was 10, and after the campaign, we looked at what was the impact of just that one experiment. It was tens of millions of dollars in donations compared you know, oh, wow. over the life of the campaign for the new email addresses we got from that. So those are just some of the examples of how we use data to make better decisions back in 2008. And so how long were you working on the campaign? Uh, so I started volunteering November 2007, all the way, uh, and then I was still at Google at the time helping. I, I was one of the first PMs on Google Chrome. Uh, And then went full time and through the election. And then I was, I was part of this weird government entity called the presidential transition team. I was a deputy director of that, uh, which told me everything I needed to know about what it would be like to work in the White House. So I turned down a job at the White House and and started my entrepreneurial journey uh, from there.
0: And so that gets you to 2010, where presumably you have an idea and apply to Y Combinator?
1: Yeah. So we actually had several startups. These are like the worst ideas, how to come up with startups.
0: I love these ideas. I love the bad stories. So they're they're
1: great. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the, the worst approach we took, and now in hindsight it was so, I am most embarrassed to admit, was my a friend of mine from Google, he and I got together and said, we want to do a startup. And so we got a whiteboard and we just started writing down startup ideas. And the one we ended up picking to start was called Carrot Sticks. It was an online math game for kids. Okay. At the time, we weren't parents, teachers, or kids. Um, and so we had no clue how to build what we're building. We didn't know yeah. how to build something people want. We ended up getting, you know, I think tens of thousands of users, nothing too crazy. But we kept running into this issue of distribution. How do we get more users? So we thought, ah, let's come up with our second startup idea, a product called Spreadly that would get, in, you know, incentivize your users to spread it with their friends. Right. We applied to iCombinator with that. We got in, luckily. And about two weeks in, we realized this is not going to work. The Spreadly idea, your, your social capital to spam your friends was always greater than the ins, uh, the discount we could offer. Yeah. So it just the model was broken, but we learned this valuable lesson. And now in hindsight, this sounds so silly, it was so much easier to build a product we wanted spreadly was the product we wanted at carrot six right carrot six we didn't know what to build we weren't parents teachers or kids and so that's what then inspired me to start optimizely which was the product i wish we had in the obama campaign in 2008 and boy was that so much easier because i just knew the problems i knew the product i needed i saw the value like i said tens of millions of dollars just from one experiment and now the the question was how do we enable non-technical folks marketers to do this and that's what started the company. And then we took off We grew it about $120 million in annual recurring revenue, 450 employees. And then we sold it so that I could pursue what I'm doing today with Rewind. When did you sell Optimizely? That was in October 2020. And who bought it? It was bought by uh, Private Equity and actually uh, it's uh, Insight Partners. And they're still actually, they love the name so much. They took the name Optimizely and used that for the uh, the umbrella company that of several other companies they acquired. It's still going. This. We use it now. I'm so proud when I use Optimizely on Rewind's website. Uh, it's such an amazing moment. It's like your teen has gone off to college. Uh, I don't know what that's like. My kids are still young, but that's what it, what I imagine <laughs> it would feel like.
0: Is there a big mistake that you have carried with you from building Optimizely and running Optimizely? Because this is not your first rodeo at Rewind. And starting from zero and going to 450 employees and all that, I'm sure there was a lot of bumps in the road. Is there anything that stuck with you?
1: Yeah, boy, there's so many. The biggest mistake and the thing I learned most from Optimizely is that everything I regret about the company falls into this following pattern. My gut says we should do A. Somebody else says we should do B. We end up doing B and it turns out poorly. There are plenty of times where we went with my gut, it turned out poorly. I don't remember yeah. any of them. What I remember is when I went against my intuition. <laughs> you need re, you uh, need then,
0: rewind to be like, oh yeah, now I yeah, remember.
1: And like the, the lesson I learned out of that is I had made the mistake to think that I'm this young founder and my job is to hire people better than me and empower them to be successful, which is true. But I made the mistake of instead of delegating the most important decisions or even you know, some decisions owning myself, I abdicated that responsibility. And so I look at those decisions and I say, well, now at least I have confidence in my conviction. No, I'm both more experienced today, so it's a little bit easier to have more confidence. But I also know that some of these decisions, you just need intuition. You can't rely entirely on hiring an expert or entirely on data even. We may fail, who knows? We may fail at Rewind, but at least we will fail because we followed my gut <laughs> and not because we followed somebody else's.
0: And when you started this in 2020, again, speaking of tech timelines, GPT2 was out by then, but it was still pretty crude compared to what is happening now. It wasn't like the Big Bang moment that we had last November when ChatGPT came out. What, what made you decide on that? I mean, I know it's kind of evolved since then, but what made you decide then to do this back in 2020?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, interestingly, it did evolve, but the original idea, like I said, was very much like what we're doing today. It was just the technology wasn't ready. Yeah. Yeah. First, I'll just say, I did not have prescience. I didn't know exactly how things would pan out and and realize how great ChatGPT was. I don't think they even knew. Uh, Sam has been very honest about that. But I did realize that if we really focused on this problem of giving humans superpowers, and in particular, perfect memory, that technology, especially with things like M1 when it came out and now with GPT-4, would serve us well. And this is the experience I had really recognizing when I got a hearing aid, I really feel like I learned a secret. And that secret is... That most of our lives, we live with blinders on. We are limited by our own biology and we don't even realize it. When I got a hearing aid, the biggest insight for me wasn't, wow, it's amazing to hear again. It was this realization that my hearing had been so bad and I didn't even know it. You know, I'd rub my shoulder yeah. and be like, Oh, this makes a sound. i turn the faucet on and like look at it in shock and realize I had lived my whole life, or many of my years, I guess, up until that point, because it was this gradual decline. And so that's what I realized. There's so many parts of the human experience. You'd hear question earlier around the use cases. We don't even realize what it would be like to live with perfect memory. And that's what we're trying to make real. You can't imagine it. You only have to feel it. And so that's what we're trying to do is making making humans feel like they have perfect memory and when you do that, I think people very quickly realize that how can I live my life without it? Just like you couldn't live a day without your glasses, we hope that you know people will feel the same, and we see that today. People say that every day about Rewind, and we just you know we're just getting started. The vast majority of the world hasn't heard about us yet.
0: What caused the uh, the deafness? Was it just a genetic thing, or?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's otoscler- I have otosclerosis. So it is a genetic thing. My right ear is particularly bad, uh, and I wear a hearing aid, and. Um, uh, yeah, every day I, I remark at how amazing it is to, to get my hearing back.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, as someone who has known Sam Altman for a long time, what OpenAI is doing and kind of the valuation and and the kind of the charge he is leading is all extremely interesting. If we fast forward, say, 20 years, the people I think that are most consequential, like him or not, at the moment are basically Elon Musk in terms of entrepreneurs or people in this era – in terms of what the advances they have pushed. How do you see Sam Altman? Because it feels like he's he's at the head of this AI push. and We have no idea where it's going to go. But it does seem like you have a lot of smart people being like, you know, this this is only the beginning. And he's a, let's say, a very unique person, a unique leader at this time.
1: Yeah, I mean I I would never bet against Sam. So Sam is uh you know Paul he obviously ran YC for a while. Paul Graham has this famous essay around the archetype of a good founder and he describes them as relentlessly resourceful. And so that's how I would describe Sam. He has a huge opportunity to be as transformative if not more than Elon Musk. You know, that's still that play or that chapter of those books still need to be written. There's a whole if you just look at the history of technology, there's so many companies that were the open eye open yeah. AI of their era. And very quickly got eclipsed by others. It's not, you know, there's this sort of idea that first mover advantage Well, You know, I, it's it's it helps, certainly. And I think people have, their, you know, the, the, it's their game to lose in some ways. But, you know, they have shown the world, and I think the world has seen, the magic of what a large language model can do. And I think that you can just see how quickly companies are growing and competing with them. I think they're doing great. I would, but if I had to choose between being Sam, the CEO of OpenAI, versus Dan, the uh, CEO of Rewind, I bet on our prospects um, and our ability to endure competitive threats much more greatly because of the data we're collecting. Whereas at the end right. of the day, OpenAI is just as a click away from another large language model using more data. Uh, you know, a good example is even the new large language model that Twitter now X has launched has this amazing data set of, you know, the amount of content produced on Twitter every day is, is like uh, some order of magnitude greater than the number of words in Wikipedia. It's like shocking. And so if you believe that these large language models only get better with more data and more training, I don't know how it's going to play out, but it's going to be their game to lose for sure.
0: Yeah, I have test drove this theory that there is a world where open AI becomes the Napster of the AI movement, where it's kind mm-hmm. of the company that emerges and everybody just drops what they're doing. It's like, oh my goodness. This thing is amazing and it's completely going to change how not just one industry, but many industries work. And then it quickly gets kind of overtaken. I mean, in Napster's case, it was lawsuits and there are lawsuits against OpenAI for, you know, the data it's using. But more just, you know, whether it's open source or as you say, there's any number of competitors that are now kind of rushing in. It's going to be very interesting to see how it
1: plays out i don't know if you if you think that theory is complete bubkiss or if you think there's no i i think if you just look at history there's it is more likely than not that OpenAI will be more like napster uh the exceptions to the rule are companies like tesla that yeah you know popularize create a category and then become the category king by a huge huge margin uh most companies do the hard work <laughs> they go Correct. from zero to one yeah they show and then they show everyone else hey this is a good idea and then smart companies like google and microsoft which you know weirdly partners at OpenAI, but you know Google is a good example. Google says, wow, this is existential. Maybe we should throw like a couple hundred billion dollars at this problem. And it's kind of hard to compete, you know? Like So yeah. in that sense, I think that your theory is very likely or could very likely be the, the future. I do think, you know, from our position and having seen this market, I do think, you know, while GPT-2 to GPT-3.5 and certainly GPT-2 to GPT-4 were huge leaps, our product, for example, if a local LLM was as good as GPT-4... That's pretty good. Like it doesn't need yeah. to be GPT five. It doesn't need to be GPT six. So in that sense, like the leap to go from not very good to like reliably as good or not better than most humans is already the leap necessary to have huge impact. So in that sense, if you think, well, they're always going to have a better GPT, but you know, I, I don't know if that's actually necessary to build a great company. And and certainly when you can do it all locally, which is not really um OpenAI's yeah. sweet spot then i think that's a pretty formidable threat so i think open source and you know the improvements in performance on local machines is going to make uh, gpt4 eventually and and so you know i and then the other thing we should say is like sam's goal is not to build a tesla his goal is to get to agi and so you know these gpts are basically just a way to fund uh, you know the research necessary the the people and bringing together great talent And then once AGI is here, you know, who knows how the world's going to look. I tend to not be uh, in the camp that everything changes overnight. uh, and I can give you an argument why. uh, But I think ultimately that's not the game he's playing. He's not trying to build another Tesla. He's trying to build AGI.
0: We had um, uh, the WorldCoin CEO on here a few weeks ago, Alex. And he was talking about how kind of WorldCoin fits into the broader idea of like, once we get to AGI, we're all going to need universal basic income and a way to distribute that to people, therefore WorldCoin. But to your point, it's part of a kind of a, a much grander vision. Before I let you go, I have um, one or two more questions. One of which is, are you dog fooding Rewind? And if so, how's it showing up in ways where you're like, oh, this is actually quite useful.
1: Let me give you a window into my life. Uh, so I have three young kids, <laughs> a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old.
0: Oh my God. And you're running a
1: startup. Yeah. And I have a 20-person uh, startup in a field that is changing faster than ever. I am in back-to-back meetings. I never have enough, I'm drowning in meetings. I'm drowning in messages. I barely have time to go to the bathroom throughout the day. And so Rewind, and in general, personalized AI, is able to give me time. That's the thing I get from it, is the ability to do more with less. Good example is, you know, if you and I meet, we have a Zoom meeting, instead of me having to take notes, afterwards, I have a draft in my inbox I can send to you, making me look good that, you know, I took these perfect notes, but it's the AI doing it for me. And not only that, but part of my job as the CEO of a startup is to connect the dots across lots of different ideas. Very often, you know, it'll be something I see maybe on on Twitter, X, and it'll be something in the moment I'm not sure about. But now I have the ability to synthesize information way better than I ever did because I have perfect recall. I can go back to those moments. So that's, that's just a little bit. We have so much more coming, by the way, right now. Uh, we're working on several projects. I think that's going to take that to the next level, which is taking a lot of my job. In fact, I think as a CEO, I'm maybe more automatable than even other parts of the company because so much of what my job is, is taking information of different silos and synthesizing it. But uh, right now, just like Optimizely was a product I wish we had uh, in the Obama campaign, Rewind is the product I wish, we had, I wish I had to make my job as a CEO and father of three young kids not only uh, tenable, but something I really enjoy.
0: Lastly, on the issue of hallucination, Because especially when you're talking about a personal AI and you're like, you know what? A, rewind, write that email to that dude, whatever. And it says, by the way, I think you're a bastard or whatever. You know, because the whole generative aspect of AI is that it's generative. It generates its own stuff sometimes that's completely out of, you know, out of left field. So how do you deal with that?
1: So that is actually one of our biggest advantages. Because we have the source truth, we can actually... Give you citations. So in that example of the Sam Altman email, it will give me a link to the time I saw my email of an introduction from Paul Graham to Sam. So it is almost by design not able to hallucinate because we don't ask it facts. That's when people, I think people, when especially when uh, Chat GPT came out, they made the mistake of evaluating its quality by its ability to retrieve facts. And if you do that, you end up with hallucinations because that's not what it's trained to do. It's trained to reason. So if you give it all of the facts in the context window, when you give it a prompt, it will actually use those facts. That's what it's like designed to do. So the hallucination problem is basically solved when it comes to these kind of personalized AI tasks if you have at the ready the context necessary. The challenge is you can't do that for the internet. You can't, there's any arbitrary question. When you, when you reduce the scope to your personal history and tasks that you would achieve using your personal history, um, hallucinations are essentially solved.
0: But if the idea is that this tool can be my cognitive butler and do a lot of this perfunctory emails setting up meetings all of that stuff. I still don't understand if it's just doing that in the background without me waiting in because sometimes it might be recording me talking to my friends and we, you know, who I've known forever and we talk a certain way and then it's not professional Danny it's you know personal Danny or <laughs> whatever and it transplants some of me into this professional context without me knowing. It's not Making things up, it's who I am. It's just, you know, it's not understanding that context, whatever it may be. It just, I I don't quite understand how you get around the hallucination problem just by limiting the data set when it's still reasoning based off of a corpus of data.
1: First of all, our approach is not to completely automate, it's more to take things that you were going to do and tee them up for you. A good example is the draft. Like when we have a meeting, uh, we could summarize it and immediately email everyone. We don't. Instead, we put a draft in your inbox for you to review and audit. And I think that's an important feedback loop to start see, there. I see. I see. And so it's less about do it automatically. It's like take a task, do the 90% of it that's drudgery, so you can do the 10% that requires your oversight.
0: Got gotcha. you. What should I tell my 77-year-old parents about AI and why they shouldn't worry that we're – they won't get killed by a Terminator, but – Maybe we would.
1: I have a good answer or I have an answer that I believe. I hope it's I hope you think it's a good answer. I think that AGI, as defined, is basically a human being or the ability of a human in a computer. It can do a task that the average knowledge worker can do. But if you think about it as defined that way, then the threat is almost completely. Overblown because every day a new human is born. It Correct. takes a few years for them to be pretty good, but there's a lot of them born every day, and some of them are very, very good. AGI isn't even claiming to be very, very good. If you look at the normal distribution of humans born every day, you know, if you're if you're worried about what's gonna happen to me, just say, okay, you've got, you know, I don't know what the order of magnitude is. Certainly a lot of people born every day. 20 years from now, they're gonna be all capable. Are they all gonna become these threats to you as a as a both a person and to society? I think not. And AGI, at least the first versions of AGI, will be so computationally expensive and requires so much energy that it's not this idea that it will even be as fast as a human. You know, AGI can do the tasks that a human would do. But first, you know, most certainly just given how energy efficient our brains are and how energy inefficient computers are, it is very likely going to be a huge computer that costs a lot of money. So the idea that, you know, just because at some point it might train on itself and get better, that immediately you get this sort of accelerating exponential rate of terror. I think what's going to happen is the same thing that's happening with our technology. It goes through these stages, these four stages of, I can't believe it, shock. Oh my gosh, there's a computer that can do AGI. Wow. Uh, you know, And this sort of like, ah, maybe some fear. Like, what does it mean for me? And then very quickly, just like airplane Wi-Fi, it'll be exactly the same thing. You'll be yeah. shocked the first time you use it, and the very next flight, you'll be like, why is this so damn slow? Uh, and Correct. so that's exactly how people will think of AGI when it launches, and it will probably be decades before AGI, even even once it exists, poses a real threat, if any, to society.
0: I don't have my rewind pendant on right now, so I can't record this, but I, I've committed it to memory. I'll come back to you You know, when we're all on the precipice of a robo-apocalypse.
1: <laughs> all right, sounds good. <laughs>
0: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Dan for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening. And as always, the ratings and the reviews and telling your friends and neighbors about the show. That is it for me this week. I might be writing something about this and a few other things in the paper. So do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. You can also get a physical paper. The actual Sunday Times do that. It'll improve your Sunday, I promise. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or send me an email at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history.